Welcome to another episode of Neurotech Brain Bites. This is Manishika and Zoe Steiny Hansen, and we're students at the University of Washington. This podcast series follows the exciting neuroengineering research going on at UW and interviews the students and researchers who make this work possible. Each podcast will interview people who are in the neuroengineering space, dive deep into their research, and hear all about their experiences. Today on the podcast, we are excited to talk with Osman Khan, who is a senior in the Electrical and Computer Engineering Department at University of Washington. Osman conducts research at the Sensor System Lab under Dr. Joshua Smith. His current research interests in neurotechnology lie in exploring ways of interfacing the brain non-invasively to unlock new knowledge, treatments, and applications. Osman is a Mary Gates research scholar and also hosts the ILM Tech Podcast, in which he talks to researchers about their work and experiences. So Osman, welcome. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your current research? Yeah, sure. First of all, thanks for you guys for having me on. I'm pretty excited to do this. So my research, I would say the kind of the broadest way I look at it is I'm in the business of making tools. I know that doesn't sound super exciting, but in the whole kind of neurotech pipeline, probably the most important problem to unlock a lot of the different things that people are excited about in this field is to gain access to the brain. So our lab, the sensor systems lab with uh, Dr. Josh Smith, he leads the communication and interface thrust under the, under the CNT. So what that means is we're really concerned with how do we gain access to that information in the brain? Uh, how do we support kind of the infrastructure that would make it possible to communicate, get information in and also get information out. So that's kind of the broader um, scope of that. I'm kind of just one part in that cog, one kind of tiny aspect and that we do wireless power to support the implants that you know might one day be implanted into people. You wanna have those things be externally powered wirelessly because ideally you don't want a bunch of wires sticking out of someone. If they have a therapeutic implant uh, for whatever reason, then it becomes you know very problematic if you can't power the device. You, you might have to do surgeries if it's battery powered, obviously you can't have a cord you know, sticking out of someone. So that's kind of what we work on. Now, as for myself, what I do is I support the technologies that help us build those wireless power platforms. Kind of the main project that I started out with, with the CNT was building a platform to help visualize the magnetic fields that help wireless power happen. So to not get too jargony, essentially what, what I'm doing is, or what I did with that project was to help you know, develop a way for people to design their wireless power implants to be safe, to be precise, to meet all the needs essentially that you need for a device to be implanted into someone as opposed to having you know, wireless power like you might have on your cell phone charger. That doesn't need to be super precise. It doesn't need to be very, you, know, you don't need to carefully control factors because there aren't really humans involved in that sense. But when you do have a biological implant, then you need to be careful about a lot of things. You need to be safe. You need to control a lot of variables. What I worked on was essentially developing a way to, to visualize and you know design for the kind of implants that we want to design to help meet the design specifications for wireless power devices. So it's pretty like general purpose platform that helps prototype quickly. So you know you have your device, you plug it in, uh, it can help generate a bunch of useful data for you to be able to iterate and optimize. So it sounds like the lab as a whole is you know they're building these wireless powered um, implants. Um, that can read and write to the brain. And what you've been working on is developing methods of testing the actual power management, the, the, the way to actually wirelessly power these, 
these devices. Right. Is that okay? All right, very yeah. cool. Very cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the second part's a little bit is a lot different actually, but okay. is um, kind of you know in a sense under the same broad theme of interfacing with the brain, and that project has to do with uh, understanding and decoding recorded neural signals from the brain. Mm -hmm. So what that means is, you know, we want to be able to read these signals from the brain and then we want to translate them to something meaningful. So if you think about like, you know, the standard, okay, I want to control a robotic arm with my brain. Someone has to take those signals and decode them. And you want, you have to do that in real time. You have to be, yeah, it has to be, you know, pretty efficient. It needs to be, you know, smart enough to figure out, you know, what that signal actually is. And, you know, we've been able to get pretty good performance with that. A lot of people have been thinking, okay, you know, artificial intelligence is taking off. We have this machine learning stuff, you know, can we apply some of that in understanding these signals? So can we have AI actually take the signals and interpret them for us, right? Mm -hmm. Now, a problem that, hap that often happens with that is to actually have this operate in the loop in real time, you know, in practice, the computational complexity and you know the the corresponding power requirements are often just like too high so you can't really you can't really run a fancy big deep neural network in real time on that often for that reason so traditionally the the, the brain computer interfaces that you hear about a lot of them will use common filters they'll use essentially just you know more basic algorithms to do that so they're kind of limited in that sense um, so what i worked on was essentially testing out something, a new experimental architecture that would, you know, help process these signals in real time in a more power efficient way. The, the inspiration for that architecture also came from the brain. So this is kind of like a, an interesting involvement in neurotechnology because on the one hand, yeah, I'm doing a neurotech problem, but I'm also getting inspiration from the brain. It's a pretty interesting, um, you know, problem in that there's like those two sides of it with respect to neuroscience. The architecture is the family of architectures that I was working on are called spiking neural networks. And what they are, um, you know, if people aren't super familiar with neural networks, you can just think of it as like a type of algorithm that's based on how the brain works. The brain has neurons that spike, that have these action potentials that, you know, that spike, they go up. And that's how, you know, cells in the brain communicate. And uh, these spiking neural network algorithms, you can just think of them as something that's pretty similar to that. You can think of them as computational, like sort of analogs to that, and that they have quote unquote neurons that spike and they have a whole bunch of those. And, you know, you can do some artificial intelligence that way. Very interesting. So you have kind of, you, you have experience working on like different parts of the neural interface, really. It sounds like some of the wireless part or sorry, some of the power part, um, power management, but then also the, like what you're describing with the spiking neural network, the coding part and algorithm mm -hmm. development. That's awesome. Um, so one of the questions we like to ask people is, could you describe your research, maybe your current research or the project that you're working on as a sci-fi novel? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I like sci-fi. I like, like sci-fi a lot. I used to read a lot as a kid. Nice. Maybe the exciting <laughs> one would be uh, like Batman gets his like spine injured or something. I think that happens in one comic. So we, we embed like uh, an implant to him that helps him, you know, take his crime fighting ways back up again, you know, <laughs> through spinal stimulation, because the project that we worked on, uh, we were developing the wireless power solutions for, you know, spinal stimulators. So the idea behind that is you, you, you impact, you implant this little piece of, you know, electronics to a close to someone's spinal cord, it can send these electrical signals that can help the spinal cord heal and they can help regain function. So maybe like a futuristic version of that is, um, this is like what I said, 
one other way I think about it is in a futuristic world where technology is accessible to everyone, you know, a poor kid in like Kabul, Afghanistan is able to design his own implant technology to, you know, biohack himself or his family members or something to, to help save them. Right. And I think that's really, I think that is sci-fi because today, no matter how much you might hear about it in the news, to build these like kind of next generation technologies, you need a lot of resources. You don't, you can't just do it by yourself. But the way I view my research and what I work on, I would like to see a future where a kid with, you know, from poor circumstances and with less privilege is able to do that kind of thing because tools have gone so good. Tools to, to engineer have gone so good where it's easy to build things, easy to design, it's easy to optimize, it's easy to fabricate. The whole process just becomes easy and accessible to everyone. So that is kind of the sci-fi novel that I'd like to see kind of more than the other one, to be honest. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think that would be really interesting and definitely like kind of brings in a wider lens of like the ethical impacts and things that people can do to help themselves um, through this technology, which would be really cool. Yeah, I was going to say that's a, that's a big part of what motivates me. I think technology, you know, this neurotech has this whole ethical problem where people are talking about this a lot. Like, all right, what do we do with this technology? It's like, okay, we can see that this is actually possible. So, you know, we can't put this problem off because it's going to hit us pretty soon. So people are worrying about this. Um, and I think, you know, one of the really important aspects of that is access, right? To make an informed decision about what we do about this technology, then people need to have access to it. One of the inherent problems is when only a small subset of people have access to the technology, right? And you gotta, you, you, you think about all these like weird, crazy dystopian futures, right? Where people are like, yeah, melding AI with the brain, like Elon Musk wants. Well, what do you do when like 5% of the rich population is able to do it and 95% aren't? And, um, you know, it creates these like, you know, mechanisms of oppression. You can totally imagine that happening. So I think, yeah, it's not just a cool vision, but it's also, I think, an important one that needs to happen in all technology, but in especially neurotech. Agreed completely. Um, and you had said that that was kind of something that it guided you to neurotech. Do you think that kind of those ethical implications is the sole thing that brought you into neurotech or like what drew you to this research and this field in general? To be honest, I don't think the ethical, ethical problems drew me in. It's more that once I got here, I was just like, all right, this is an issue. But um, I think what initially drew me in was a couple of things. I can connect these dots looking back, but at the time, it probably, it probably wouldn't have, you know, been a logical thing to forecast. So, you know, looking back, I think my first fascination with the brain had to do with communication and how people talk to each other, how people communicate with each other. I grew up in, you know, a town and a school and an environment where we had a lot of people from different backgrounds. So I was an immigrant, I was, I was, an, I was a foreigner. And all my friends were foreigners, but from different places. And so we're all kind of living together, right? And so I, I think about this a lot, right? So the way we think about language and communication is just really like a low bandwidth signal you're communicating from your brain. It's just like a really bad way of communicating your thoughts, essentially. I mean, it's great. It's great for what we have. But um, in, in terms of like what it actually is, you're just taking your thought, which is like this, which is the, a raw thing. And you're trying to put that through the pipeline of language and communicate that to someone else. And uh, I always felt that a lot of problems in the world just came from people not being able to understand each other. And I just thought, okay, maybe that's the reason why there's conflict because people just don't understand each other. So I, I once had this like funny thing when I was a kid, I was like, maybe if people could do like brain to brain communication and nothing was lost, you know, there'd be like less conflict. So that was, it was a fascinating concept to me, but you know, I, to be honest, I completely forgot about that by the time I was actually going to school and um, going to university and starting to study, it was just, 
you know, just something in the back of my head. And then, so I started off, I was interested in physics. So when I came to UW in the beginning, I was a physics major. And then I saw that, you know, the electrical engineering students and the, you know, the research faculty, they were building a lot of cool things. And I came to the realization that, you know, I want to actually make stuff. I don't want to just discover stuff because yeah, I feel like we've discovered a lot of physics, but we haven't made a lot of things. So um, that's what I wanted to do. So I, I, can't, I got into electrical engineering and I just kind of tried to just go for things as much as possible. I was interested in research. So as a freshman, I just reached out to, you know, whatever it's the professor that I thought was interesting, which was, you know, Josh at the time, he was doing some cool stuff. So I just asked him and he was, he was very like, he was very friendly to me. He let me, you know, he, he, he spoke to me and put me in touch with one of his graduate students. At the time, I didn't know anything. I was just like, can imagine I, was, I just came out of high school I had like zero useful skills but yeah he really helped me in a big way there and then I kind of just got involved with the different projects in the lab and um, you know one day he emailed me he was like hey the center for neurotech is doing this program in the summer do you want to do it I was just like cool yeah let's do it yeah after I started after I went, once I got that initial involvement everything kind of just spiraled from there yeah I think that's a really interesting backstory and yeah I think you're one of many physicists who decided to switch to neurotech. That's a very common theme from what I've heard from many people. Yeah, I think it's just people who study physics are really interested in why questions and how things work. And uh, the, the logical conclusion of that, well, I once saw someone say that, you know, physics is like philosophy because the logical conclusion of the questions you ask in physics is to go to philosophy. But I'd probably counter and say the logical conclusion of philosophy is to go to neuroscience because philosophy is what has to do with your thoughts and where do your thoughts come from? They come from the brain. So I think, you know, people who are really motivated or interested in those questions of, all right, how do these things work? How, how are fundamental things structured? Uh, I think it leads them down that rabbit hole and I know that's where they end up because this is like a huge unexplored region, right? Like you can almost think that we know more about the stars than we do about what's in our own heads. I think I would say that's probably true. Yeah. That's it's true. I mean, there's there's so many different philosophical questions that come about with uh, just delving deep into into the fields of neuroscience and engineering and physics. So um, we wanted to segue a little bit. We know that you are a practicing Muslim and you draw a lot of inspiration and motivation from from your faith. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Can you talk about how your personal faith influences how you think about your research or how you think about mm -hmm. um, your your kind of your professional and personal life? Yeah. Yeah. So like I said before, I mean, I see myself and my career in the business of making tools. And the reason I, I do that is because I thought about it like this. Right now, all the things that we have in the world, all the engineering, you know, marvels, you might say that we've created have been created by a very small subset of the population. If you look up how many engineers are in there in the world, you'll find that it'll be like a fraction of a percent. So I did this thought experiment. And I was like, all right, what if like 80% of the world were engineers or had the ability, the know-how, the resources of an engineer? Or if that was 90%, what if it was 100%? What if we all were, right? Well, then I would think you would solve a lot of the problems that we're confronted with very fast. I think that people would be able to cooperate and people would be able to solve all these things that we grapple with, you know, energy, water, sustainability, everything that's out there, right? Uh, so, how, so the question is, how do you make that happen? How do you make this accessible? Right? And so that's why I thought that, okay, tools need to be better. We need to, make it, we need to make it easier to be an engineer. One way is, okay, you train everybody, but that might not be so practical. So why not just make it require less training to actually get the result? So that's how I view my, you know, that my goals of, you know, making it easier to build these tools. Now, how does that tie into my faith? In Islam, there's a concept called 
in Arabic is called Sadaqa Jariya, meaning a charity that continues on forever, right? So charity is a very big part of the faith, but this specific concept is something that is like kind of leaving behind a legacy. So the examples that are given, you know, by the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, about this, uh, this, this concept is like, okay, you plant a tree and people are able to eat from the fruits of that tree. Even after you die, that tree is there, right? You build a school, you build a mosque, whatever you do, you donate some money. And in a sense that, or you write a book, that's another example, right? And it propagates, you know, regardless of what you do, people are able to benefit. So I was really motivated by that concept a lot. I was like, all right, my career goal is to make a great sadaqajariya that can propagate, that can help a lot of people. Um, and, you know, that's, that, that was a way for me to tie in kind of, you know, my faith and what I believe is my purpose in life to what I do. So that, that, I think that's kind of what informed that whole goal of, okay, I want to make something that I want to make it easier for more people to be engineers because that'll propagate, right? I'm not limited by my own ability to come up with solutions. Like I say this all the time. I don't see myself as a super smart guy, like <laughs> definitely not. Right. But if I make it easier for all the smart people to do their job, then I've done a great thing. So that's kind of how I, um, how I see that whole problem. Interesting. Yeah. So it's sort of like you're trying to leave a, a legacy behind, I guess, of, of, um, of yourself and also of what you're, you believe in. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I, I'm curious then is that, uh, are you interested in teaching experiences as well, just kind of based off of what you were saying? Yeah, I think uh, I've, I, the, the idea of teaching did appeal to me a lot um, and mentorship. So, you know, whenever there's an opportunity to like talk to people, to mentor people, I try to do it as much as I can. But so I th actually thought about that. I was like, all right, if I want to make as many people as possible into an engineer, there's like two ways I could do that, right? One is I could teach people, the other is I could make tools. I realized, all right, there's a lot of people who are teaching and teaching has been around a long time and, you know, we still haven't gotten there. So sure. I, I just thought I'm lit, but in teaching, I'm kind of limited by my time. Mm. So, um, so I, th I think that's why I started focusing the other way. And I feel there's a lot of great teachers out there. So I, I like, I, you know, I, the idea does appeal to me, you know, whenever I'm able to do it, but I guess I just haven't done it that much or had the opportunity to do it as much as I might've liked to. Right. But definitely sure. an interesting concept. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of different ways that you can, Kind of mentor other people yeah so i guess that kind of maybe ties into something else that we want to talk to you about is we know that you're working on a podcast and so is that another kind of tool that you're using to kind of further help people become engineers on their own in a sense yeah that was actually you know there were two motivations for the podcast and the podcast like i haven't to be honest like kept up with it that much recently but there were two motivations with it you know school happens life happens etc i'll probably get back to it at some point but um, two motivations, like I said, one was I wanted to inspire people to be able to think more creatively and have access to what's going on. Because when I came to UW in the beginning, I was like, wow, I didn't even know that all this stuff, these professors are just walking in and doing everything every day are possible. I was like, okay, you guys are casually doing like, you know, brain controlled stuff. I didn't even know this existed. Right. But apparently it's a thing. So I thought that, you know, more people need to know about this stuff, more young people need to know about it so that they can start thinking about what problems they want to solve and, uh, you know, come to their own conclusions and stuff like that. So I thought, you know, it'd be a cool way to do it. You know, people like listening to things more than they like reading. I think, especially if you try, try to read a paper and you don't have the background, you'll be totally lost. Right. But if you hear someone talk about it, you know, you know, maybe you can start to understand it. So that was, that was motivation one. I wanted to inspire people to, you know, 
young people especially to be, to be more creative in that way. That's, that's the more noble answer that I give to people. But uh, the real reason or, you know, one of the really big factors that I definitely uh, feel I need to explain is it was an excuse for me to talk to professors. I want to talk to people to learn and, you know, to get in contact with them, to know them, et cetera, um, because I felt that was a really good thing for me to do to develop my own ideas, right? Uh, but some of them are nice. Some of them will just, you know, you'll email them and they'll just sit and talk to you. Like Chet Moritz over here is, he's great. He helped me out in the beginning a lot, um, especially when I started getting involved with Neurotech. I literally sent him an email and I was like, hey, I'm interested in what you do. Can we talk sometime? And he's like, oh yeah, sure, come to my office. And I sat to him, talked to him for an hour, just, just asking him questions. He's a super nice guy. But I thought, you know, the podcast, one, it gives me an excuse to actively be looking for people to talk to. And two, if I tell a professor like, hey, you know, we can record a podcast, he'll probably view that as a, you know, a better use of his time. And to be honest, they are very busy people, right? They're not going to have time always to sit and talk to an undergrad one-on-one and, you know, explain everything because they've just got so many things going on, right? But if you tell them, hey, you know, we can have this podcast and they, and they can start thinking, okay, this is actually like a good thing. You know, I can, a lot of people can listen to this. A lot of people can benefit from it. So maybe I should do it. So that was, that's like probably the real reason, right? The excuse to talk to people. Uh, yeah, those are the kind of the two things. Yeah, I think that's really clever um, to kind of have both of those reasons behind why you wanted to get involved and do that. Um, so yeah, kudos to you for starting it. Yeah, thanks. For sure. Um, and maybe after we can talk about some tips and tricks for how to run a podcast, because we are very interested in learning more about how it's worked out for you. Oh yeah, for sure. That'd be great. Like, um, I haven't done it super seriously. The, the whole thing for me was I had to make myself do it. And, you know, it, with the, if you have school classes, research, it's hard to make yourself do something. So I just went with the most bare bones setup possible. This has stopped myself from having excuses not to do it. If I have all these barriers to entry, I'll keep telling myself, oh man, that's so hard. Do it later. Mm-hmm. But if I make it just like super easy, just brain dead easy, then, uh, I can't really give myself that excuse. But yeah, it would definitely be great to talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard people say, make the lazy thing the easiest thing to do. So then you actually get things done. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I'm curious about kind of what's next for you. I think you're in your senior year. So getting close to graduation, what's, what are your next steps? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, I have wanted to go to grad school for a long time and get a PhD. I think that, I think that level of knowledge and research is kind of, you know, important for, my lofty goals of, you know, helping everyone engineer more effectively, but kind of on that pathway, some people advised me that, Hey, maybe it's good to go to industry for a little while. And for my, for my goal specifically, I feel it's important for me to have experience as an engineer and being on the ground, solving problems because of that, what I've chosen to do now is, you know, go to industry for at least some time. Uh, yeah, I've been talking with a startup, uh, that, you know, I'll be joining for an internship and then probably full-time after. Yeah, I don't know. I can't say too much about the startup right now. Just suffice to say that I'm the reason I'm joining a startup is because I want to uh, learn quickly, learn a lot of things and learn everything about the process in as short a time as possible. I think maybe at some point I'll probably revisit the idea of grad school once I feel like I've, you know, I've done enough in the industry space. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe some other way. Maybe I can do like a master's part time and then eventually a PhD after. I don't know. But that's kind of what I'm thinking about right now. Yeah, I think given the goals that you have, that's that's a reasonable next step is to kind of get the more hands-on engineering experience and then kind of go back and get that further education later on. 
yeah, it wasn't an easy decision to come by. Like I had to think about that a lot. And, and now at this point, I'm like, wow, I wasted all that time applying to grad school. I'm not even going this year, which is like, okay. But I think it was a, it was a good experience because the grad school application process taught me a lot about myself in terms of they really force you to think about like, what are your goals, right? So I think it was a, it was a net positive for me going through this whole decision-making process and everything. But I feel like I've got a little bit more clarity now and uh, yeah, excited for what's coming. Awesome. Yeah. I think that's a good point that even if maybe your first application round doesn't work out, there's still always things to learn from that, especially about yourself. And so always ways that you can continue to move forward for sure. Mm -hmm. All right. Um, well, I think that covers all of the questions we wanted to ask you. Thank you, Usman, so much for your time today. We really appreciate hearing about your research and hearing about um, all of the various things you've worked on, what inspires you to work on this research and excited to see where you go. For sure. Yeah. Thank you guys. Both of you guys, Zoe and Manishka. It was, it was good to talk to you guys and um, yeah, really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope you found Usman's story and research inspiring. Don't forget to take a bite with Brain Bites next time when we talk to Tim Brown, a new professor here at the University of Washington focusing on neuroethics. Until then, stay curious. This podcast was produced by the Neurotech Student Club at the University of Washington. Hosted by Manishka Maduri, Manju Anant, and Zoe Steine Hansen. Edited by Michael Nolan. Music by Asad Beck. Cover art by Pavithra Rajeshwaran.